0: the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, where Paul was reading for us this morning. We're going to be reading a good portion of this chapter, so I'm not going to reread what Paul read for us because we're going to be going through it verse by verse in just a second. I've entitled uh, the message this morning, Matters uh, of the Heart. and This morning I would like to look at uh, Jesus' instruction to his disciples about worrying about things that are not really important when we compare it to those things um, which are eternal. And he's trying to put it in not only perspective, but priority on how we deal with that. Um, Then the reality of earthly pursuits, we're going to be looking at Solomon, who had the wisdom and the resources to do everything and anything he wanted. And we'll discover his conclusion as he experiments with those things. I'd like to do a little sidetrack and talk about when life begins. And um, the last one, where do our treasures really lie? When we allow uh, the Spirit of God to search our heart and we're honest with uh, what we do with our time, energy, money, etc. Um, first of all, let's go to Luke chapter 12 and look at the first verse where it simply says And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Now the last couple of Sundays um, I've I've been pointing out uh, the times the disciples uh, would become fearful. Um, They would worry Um, in contrast um, to the Lord's peace in every one of these situations. Um, They were worried about the storm. Their life was on the line. The Lord wasn't worried at all. He was taking a nap during the whole thing. But they were fearful, and they shouldn't have been. Then, they were worried about how in the world were they gonna get enough food to feed 5,000 people? In one of the Gospels, it pointed out that the Lord already knew what he was going to do, and that it was really a test. And I think uh, when we do a study on worry, anxiety, fear, depression, whatever, um, At the root of it is taking our eyes off this book, putting it on the storm, just like Peter. You know, Peter was doing fine walking on the water until he took his eyes off the Lord and he looked at the storm, and that's when he began to sink. Um, The lack of faith, if you just go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 41, the Lord is clearly frustrated with them and this isn't brought up much in nature when we study the, the, um, the word. That's why I think it's so important to study chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We would maybe hop over this one because it's not a happy, clappy verse. that doesn't build you up. It actually <laughs> reproves you and rebukes you for your lack of faith. So the Lord, verse 41, answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? In my column here, it says, How long do I have to put up with you guys? I mean, you've been walking with me, seeing all these things. How long do I have to bear with you? Bring him to me. And the implication here is that they should have uh, um, had the authority that was given to them and, and believed on it. And clearly, the Lord is frustrated with their lack of uh, faith. In um, his teaching. And now as we go back to chapter um, 10, verse 22, it's very clear, do not worry. I actually went through the, these verses here and counted up how many times he repeats this. Let's read down through um, 22 to 26. We've already read 22. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, uh, which have neither storehouse nor barn. God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, and now here's the second time he's going to say, say it, by worrying can add one cubic to his statue? I'm going to expound on this a little bit more. Luke does a pretty good job. Matthew does a better job. And we'll go to Matthew's account on this. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Now, the word anxious here is where we get the word anxiety from. And if you're a worrywart and anxious about many things, anxiety and depression is only a little ways away. So there's the reason the Lord is giving this instruction. Don't worry about it. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. There's a reason. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 says, there's, when all is said and done, there's faith, hope, and love. So faith, faith in what? Well, we just had communion. Faith in a finished work that all my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. That's faith. I have to have faith to believe that. That takes care of my past. Now, hope, um, we have what's called the blessed hope. Well, what's my hope? My hope is I'm never going to die. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Those things are gone, and they will be gone forever. And so we have this, what we call the glorious hope. Uh, Someday the Lord's going to come for his bride and take us out of here. And that's the hope that I have. So my past is taken care of. All my sins are gone. He's not going to remember them anymore. My future is secure. Nothing's going to stop him from establishing his kingdom and you and I reigning in that. Now, love is in the middle. And the reason the Lord is concerned about anxiety and depression and worry is if we allow those things in today and we're worried about something that happened yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow. We have to understand it takes away our freedom. You're not free today because you're worried about yesterday or something that's going to happen about tomorrow or maybe even something today. My point is this. When the Lord said, you'll know the truth and it'll set you free, that's exactly what he meant. He wants you free. And he wants people to see your freedom, especially during the storm, (laughs) especially during the difficult times when you're being tested. When we read about the feeding of the 5,000, who was it? One of the disciples, Philip, I can't remember which one. But he said, this he said, testing them because he knew what he was going to do. Well, there's a lot of theology in that one verse That means there's a lot of things that you go through on a daily basis that you're completely unaware that you're in the middle of the test. Let's see how he will respond or she will respond to this one. So why not, why do not worry? Why is it repeated so many times? So you can be free. So you can be freed up to love, past taken care of, glorious future lays ahead. That should free me up for today. If I simply am obedient to what the Lord is saying here. Don't worry about it. Uh, as long as uh, he's in the boat with you, Romans 8:28, still in the Bible. Yeah, but you don't know this one's really, a, this is really a, a barbed murder, it's a fiery trial. Yep, yeah, and exactly what Peter said. Like uh, your faith is being tested, like in fire. You're being refined. And maybe you've passed one day and you don't (laughs) handle it correctly, but hopefully you learn from it. Good place for it, amen? It's a learning curve, learning curve process. Now, in 27 and 28, we're introduced to Solomon. He said, I want you to consider the lilies, how they grow. Beautiful time of year. Flowers are coming up. Tulips pretty much peaked out, but they're so beautiful while they last. Consider... um, the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now we can read over that verse and realize that Solomon was one of the kings of Israel. But we really, in the Lord's context here, he's using it to the magnitude of the wealth and wisdom that this man possessed. So what I'd like you to do is go back um, to First Kings chapter 10. And I wish I could read all this. I'm going to glean some and I will read some. When the Lord said, even Solomon in all of his glory. Get, I want you just to get a little glimpse of the glory that this man had. Of course, when he became king, he was insecure and so he went and he asked the Lord to give him wisdom to to fill in David's shoes as king big shoes to fill and the Lord said okay I'm going to make you the wisest man who ever lived nobody before you nobody after you will ever be as wise as you are now we're Calvary Chapel people we take that literally good place for an amen So apart from the Lord, there's never lived a man wiser than Solomon. Well, the word got out. And chapter 10 begins with the queen of Sheba. She'd heard rumors about Solomon, so she wanted to check him out. She wanted to test him. And in verse 2, she came to Jerusalem, and um, she came with much gold, precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke with him, all that was in her heart. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters, and their apparel, cupbearers, his entryway by which he went into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. That's another way of saying he took her breath away. <laughs> then she said to the king, it's true, it's a true report where I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw it with my own eyes and indeed only half of it was told. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard and she goes on to explain how happy must be those people who are under you as king with the wisdom that you have. And now we'll pick up, and I do want to read, just so that you can get a feel, when the Lord says, even Solomon in his glory. I'm going to give you a little glimpse of his glory. Picking it up in verse um, 014, just just, uh, what came in gold. This is the only other place 666 occurs in, the Bible that I'm aware of. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, from the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of hammered gold and three miners of gold um, went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory, overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps. The top of the throne was round at the bout. There was armrests on either side of the place of the seat. Two lions stood beside the armrest. Twelve lions stood. There, one on each side of the six steps, nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of, of Lebanon were of pure gold. Not one was of silver, for this was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Um, once every three years the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes and monkeys. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom and all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his words which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his presents, articles of silver and gold Garments, armor, spices, horses, mules, at a set rate year by year. Solomon reigned for forty years, so do the math. That many talents of gold every year. Uh, he had a monopoly in the uh, the trading in the horse industry, which he was not supposed to do. Um, the crossroads. When we visit Israel, we go to Megiddo, and one of the places that's there are called Solomon's Stables. And what they would do, they were sort of the, uh, uh, we would compare it to a car dealership today, the middleman. If you can buy direct from the factory, great, you're going to save money, right? Well, we don't. We go to a car dealer, and they're the middleman, and they take their cut. Well, Solomon was the middleman. He would buy horses from Egypt, and then he would sell them in the north. And by this, it was just a continuing monopoly that he had that there was none richer so when we read in Luke and it says consider the lilies of the field they don't uh, Solomon's glory doesn't even come close to a lily that's in the field I wanted to give you just a little taste of the magnitude of the wealth there's never been a king um, like this not only with uh, the wealth of his resources, but the wisdom to apply it like really no other man. And with that, um, that was wisdom. He wrote 1,005 songs. I think the Beatles are a little under 300. (laughs) He wrote 3,000 Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. And uh, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes He also wrote um, the Song of Solomon. So Solomon had the wisdom and resources to do whatever he pleased, and so he did. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is a book that he wrote for his son because he had tried everything and he comes to a conclusion that he can pass down to his children. So with that, I would like you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're wondering where that is, it's right after the Psalms and and the Proverbs, and then you're gonna find the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, I have to be selective because I believe there's 12 chapters here, and I'm only gonna be able to touch on a couple of them. But the idea of this, with um, the wisdom that he had, he really could do pretty much anything he wanted to do. So we read in verse one of chapter one, these are the words of the preacher, the son of the David, king of Jerusalem. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity. And as we go down, he just says, one generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, the sun goes down and hastens to its place where it rose. The wind goes towards the south, turns around to the north, the wind whirls continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. They all return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. There's always something new that they want to look at or experience. Let's pick it up here in verse 14, where, let's go back to verse 12. He says, "I the preacher was over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This grievous task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. You ever try to put your hand." And catch the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understanding, understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive this also is a grasping of the wind. Why? He's the smartest guy in the world. He says, for much wisdom is much grief. Now, there's a lot of truth to that. The more a person understands and grasps, um, really, if I would just stop and say what's going on in the world today, and you knew all about what was taking place, uh, better not get sidetracked here, but i 'm thinking about doing it. <laughs> I was looking for a place in Grammy, Colorado, where my friend Pat gave his life to the lord and Nobody knew where this place was except one guy in town, and he came down and um, all of a sudden, he started spouting out um, the exploits of his father being much like a much like a solomon, and he began telling me detailed information um, that the government is involved in, that his father worked on secret space programs. And you guys don't know this guy. I only met him once, but I can pretty well tell if a guy's a straight shooter or not. And plus he knew the place that I needed to get to. (laughs) So I was listening to him. One of the things he said that sort of blew my mind is dad worked on um, uh, the largest... um, Um, with NASA, um, the number four one, the most powerful of our rockets. I can't remember the first part of it. But then he said this. He says, it's common knowledge in NASA that we've already been to Mars and back four times. And I said, say what? And he kept going on telling stories like that. And I thought, well, this guy is either crazy or he's telling me the truth, but he wasn't a crazy type guy. We talked for 45 minutes. I wanted him to be able to put together what he sees happening in the world with what the Bible predicts prophetically is going to take place. We had quite a discussion. My poor wife had to sit in the car for 45 minutes waiting while we were rambling on. (laughs) And uh, my point with all this was um, he had an incredible amount of wisdom and insight that this gentleman had so now the pursuit begins with chapter two. He says, okay, I said in my heart, let's see if there's anything out there that's fulfilling. Come now, I will test you with myrrh. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this was also vanity. And I said of laughter. Maybe it's in a, a, a good funny movie or a joke or something else. That's madness. And myrrh, what does it accomplish? I searched my heart to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under the days of their lives. I made my work great. I built myself houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens, orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made water pots from which to water and growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants. I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings. Now, who in the world knows what that could imply? And the province, I acquired male and female servants and singers and the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem and also my wisdom remained with me. In other words, he's trying it all, but through it all, he's retaining his wisdom to see if there's any substance or satisfaction that it's going to bring to him. He has the wisdom, he has the resources, and he's going for all of it. Um, let's go to a chapter we could read much here. Um, let's read down to verse 11. "Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure." for my heart rejoiced at all my labors and this was my reward for all my labor and then i looked at the works that my hands had done and the labor in which i had toiled and indeed it was all vanity grasping for the wind there was no profit under the sun turn to chapter 5 again we can't go through the whole book but you'll get you'll get uh, the main points of it here chapter 5 verses um ten through fifteen. Much of America is ob- obsessed with wealth and money. And so he deals with that in ten through fifteen of chapter five. He said He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with, with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit has the owner except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of the laboring man is sweet. Whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Uh, There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept from their owner to his hurt But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begs a son and there is nothing in his hand, and he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from labor, which he may carry away in his hand. He says, go ahead, have it all. But your time is short. And when all is said and done, you can't take one bit of it with you. And he says, all, as far as his building projects, he says, I did all the labor, but in the end, somebody else is going to live in it. And um, we could read the rest of the book. I would encourage you to do so. But here's my simple point. The Lord is making a simple statement. Even Solomon in his glory, and a man who has tried it all and done it all, after trying it all and doing it all, he says it's empty. You know, I think of the old Rolling Stone song. I can't get no satisfaction. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. It's simply not out there. So what's the conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes? Turn to chapter 12. And he says, uh, let's pick it up in verse 9. Of chapter 12, moreover, Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought out to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails uh, given by one shepherd. And further, my son, you see, this was written to his son uh, mom and dad you want a book to bring up your kids the book of Ecclesiastes my son be admonished by these of making many books there's no end and much study is worrisome to the flesh so let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter bottom line fear God and keep his commandments for this is a whole duty of man can i read that again what are we here for what are we pursuing what do i want to do with my life no this is a whole duty of man to what to seek first his kingdom for god will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing whether it is good whether it is evil thus ends the book of ecclesiastes let's go back to luke chapter when we read Luke chapter 12 and we have four words that the Lord just said a lily is much more glorious than the glory of Solomon hopefully you have a little bit better understanding of, of, of the wisdom and the wealth and the pursuits of Solomon picking it up in verse 13 through 21 of 12 Uh, The parable of the rich fool, Uh, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Well, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Then he spoke a certain parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, Well, what should I do, since I have no more room for my crops? So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my crops, my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Word for word, pretty much what Solomon said. You're not going to take it with you. Yet his whole life was pursuing bigger and better, and yet he wasn't taking thought of what is the most important um, part of life. And it is the human soul. Good place for an amen. Now everybody's gonna agree with me this morning when I ask for an amen. You have to. <laughs> but the reality of it is we live in America. And so this is, this is a reality check of what we're up against. Every time you see a commercial, every time somebody says, well, had, have you seen one of these? Or have you seen the latest One of these, and um, bigger and better. And um, again, the only thing that provides a safeguard for us is when we study God's Word and we look at what really is important and what's the eternal. And primarily, in the meantime, the things that we preoccupy ourselves with buying and selling, eating and drinking it says, Why are you any different than the Gentiles? They do the very, very same thing. McGee comments on this. He says, now, of course, it's not wrong to store up things. The problem with the rich fool was covetousness. He was trying to get more and more and more. This is a curse of godless capitalism. Have you noticed the strong judgment that is pronounced upon the rich in the last days? James 5.1 describes it, Go to now, you rich man, weep and howl, for your misery shall come upon you. Riches have become a curse. Our great nation thought that the almighty dollar would solve the problems of the world, and we are in a bigger mess than ever. We are arguing about whether or not in God we trust should remain on our money. Let's take it off because it's hypocrisy anyway. We are not trusting in God but we're trusting in the dollar. To have a slogan on money means nothing at all. America needs to to turn back to reality and truth and quit mouthing religion. We should teach our hearts and ask ourselves, am I living for this life only? Our Lord said, go look at the birds. And learn something from them. no one knows when your time is up. no one knows when their time is up it 's only been a week and um, um, shannon Tews, um forty eight years old gone just like that, and we nobody was expecting it, attended the funeral, listened to his brother. Uh, speak about his brother the love that they had for each other and um, yet the bottom line is you know where are you now and I bring that up because every person here has somebody that you're praying for that's not saved. Can I get an amen on that? My question now is how much effort are you putting into if you really believe what we 're talking about this morning, that there is eternal things that last forever, and if the most important thing is the soul, then how much effort are we applying and please don 't misunderstand me i don 't i 'm not into guilt trips or try to make you feel guilty for not witnessing that 's not it at all i 'm just we 're just doing a reality bible study here. And what's really important. Why? Because where your heart is. Where's your heart? Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And where our treasures and our hearts should be, we should have a heart for the lost. Another good place for an amen. Why? Because we're already saved. Lord, we just got back The 70 disciples. We've been casting out demons, healing people. Oh, Lord, you should have seen it. That's eh, nothing. I saw the devil fall from heaven like lightning. He said, don't be happy about that. Be happy because your name is written in heaven. So the Lord, they were all jazzed up about they had power. And the Lord would say, I've been there. Be more happy that your names are in heaven. So what I'd like to do here is do a little sidetrack. If we're talking about life this morning, I'd like you to turn, and I want to address the question, where and when does life begin? Let's turn to Psalm 139, which my Bible is just open to, Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. David is talking about the awesomeness of the creation, and now he turns his attention particularly to his own creation when the Lord created him. He says in verse 13 of Psalm 139, "'For you have formed my inward parts, "'you have covered me in my mother's womb, "'and I will praise you, "'for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. "'Marvelous are your works, "'and that my soul knows very well. "'My frame was not hidden from you "'when I was made in secret "'and skillfully wrought "'in the lowest parts of the earth.' You saw my substance yet being unformed. Just like that. Say again. God saw David's form before it was formed. And then he goes on to say, And in your books they were all written. The days fashioned for me. The Bible says the Lord will direct the steps of a righteous man. When as yet there was none of them. Now hold on. You I mean, it was all laid out ahead of time. He knew him before he was conceived in his mother's womb. And uh, as yet, well, there was none of them. So the question here that is a big issue today, it is getting um, the abortion issue is becoming uh, much more vocal. Um, with the gay-lesbian Movement that used to be, they used to call it, well, they were in the closet. Well, they're not in the closet anymore. No, they have parades, they have special days that commemorate their sodomy. Yes, I said the word sodomy, because that's exactly what it is. And now we have the question of abortion, as if it's a trivial thing, taking the life of a child. And we don't, our conscience have become so seared. Talk about the Talk about the frog in, in, in the pot. You all know the analogy, right? Put him in a pot and slowly turn up the heat and he'll adjust to it and he'll eventually, won't jump out, he'll cook. Because his, our minds have been seared to the society in which we live when we don't think anything about an abortion, a child. My question when it gets into that. Uh, is um, well, what if it was a girl, baby, that was aborted? It usually doesn't change the thinking too much. Um, my, my point with this, and the question is, when does life begin? And people argue, well, not until it breathes or when the two cells come together. I asked the guys at Ben's Prairie yesterday, when do you think life begins? And they said, when, when uh, the cells divide for the first time. And I said, no, wrong according to Psalm 139, before that. According to the Bible, you existed in God's mind and his days were all laid out before you. Then he goes on to say, how precious are your thoughts towards me. How precious is a baby child that has never been able to see life or to have their days fulfilled. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy Chapter 18. People are afraid today to call an abomination an abomination. People today are afraid to call a homosexual a sodomite. The Bible does. Takes it a step further and calls it abomination. Paul in writing to the Romans in chapter 1 takes it a step further saying, Okay, I've wrestled with you, but I won't always strive with you. If that's the road you want to go down, you have a free will. But I'm going to turn you over to that and it will defile you. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, picking it up with verse nine, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found Among you, anyone who makes a son or daughter to pass through the fire, giving their children over to sacrifice, killing their children. The Lord said, you shall not do it. It is an abomination to me. As far as the spiritual realm goes, in dabbling with anything other than the Holy Spirit and the word of God, he says, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. Because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. We have the scriptures being very, very clear. So the next time you're in an abortion discussion, You you can say, well, like one of the men said at men's prayer yesterday. Here's what God thinks about abortion. And uh, you can read it to him. And this is what the world thinks about abortion. Uh, Which one do you think is right? And uh, just put that out before them and let them think about it. And remember that the word of God never returns void. They might say something one second, but they gotta go home and put their head on a pillow that night, don't they? And my prayer is when I have a conversation like that, oh Lord, don't let that guy sleep tonight. Make him toss and turn all night long. Don't give him a second's rest or peace. Be like a broken record that goes around in his head that God hates abortion. And that um, um, you'll give this person no peace. People still have a conscience until it's seared. That's what Romans 1 teaches. Before you met the Lord, you knew that it was wrong. What was the first thing I stole? I think it was a 50 cents out of my mother's purse, if I remember right. And I wanted it because carameled apples were going for 50 cents at the time. And I really wanted it. So my conscience told me I was wrong. When I got caught stealing from my mother, dad proved to me it was wrong. <laughs> my point is I have a conscience. Before you're born again, you know what's right and you know what's wrong. But what's weird about this particular sin in Romans 1, he said he gave them over to it. What does that mean? Their conscience had become so seared that they no longer have a conscience towards Killing an innocent child, and the Lord is clear about this. So, by a little sidetrack, if we're talking about life, uh, let's start right at the beginning. And um, um, as we consider these things, it begs the question: Well, how should we then live? Let's close things up this morning by looking at um, going back to Luke chapter twelve. Um, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, how should we then live? My friends, these are matters of the heart. These are matters of the word of God, not just being hearers of this Bible study this morning, but doers. And being that wise virgin that was waiting for the Lord. See, not all caught up in the world because we know that this is temporal. And I'm not to worry about it because God says he's gonna take care of me. Now, I'm either gonna believe that or not. If I believe it, I'll have peace. I won't be anxious. If I don't believe it, I'll be pursuing things that are temporal. I won't have peace. Anxiety will set in when I don't get what I want or things don't turn out the way I think they should. So in verse 35... We read, let your waist be girded up and your lamp burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding and when he comes and knocks that they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will find watching Assuredly I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. Why? Because they're waiting. What are we doing? Well, we're occupying. Uh, Don't be misunderstood about um, buying and selling. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. Good place for an Amen. (laughs) It means we're not to be lazy. Well, I'm not supposed to be pursuing food and clothing. And I'm not saying, I'm saying just the opposite. No, you need to provide for your families. And if you don't work, you don't eat. So don't misunderstand what's being said here. But it's a matter of the heart. Where is your heart? Where are your priorities? But know this, if the master of the house had come... Uh, what hour the thief would come he would have watched and have not allowed his house to be broken into therefore why is there a therefore because of everything we read before therefore you be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him I was uh, going through my notes this morning and when I was done I had a little extra time so I thought I'd read my wisdom for the day And I thought, well, that's pretty much my Bible study, so I guess I'll close with it. (laughs) It's June 2nd, From Depression to Hope, and I'm quoting Pastor Chuck in his daily devotion wisdom for today. He's quoting Lamentations, written by Jeremiah. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations three, twenty-one to 26. Chuck's commentary on those verses. As is usually the case, It was thinking about himself that caused Jeremiah's depression. But when he changed his way of thinking from himself to God, the depression left. When he remembered God and meditated on his character, his peace, his hope, it filled his mind. When hopelessness vanishes, hope takes its place. Instead of thinking about himself, Jeremiah thought about God's nature. He thought about the Lord's mercy, through which we are not consumed. He thought about God's faithfulness. God always does exactly what he says he will do. And he is able to bring forth good out of the deepest mess. He thought about the fact that the Lord is our portion. What more could we want or need? He thought about the goodness of God who works all things together for our benefit. And then Jeremiah concluded that it is good to hope and wait. And there we go back to it. We have a hope. Hope of what? Well, we're waiting. I'm busy doing what? Waiting. (laughs) Hoping. It is good to hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Question Are you worried today? Change your thoughts. Don't meditate upon your pain. Meditate upon your Savior. Set your eyes on Jesus and remember his character. His love has never failed you. His mercies are new every morning. If our real treasure is watching and waiting for the bridegroom and our wanting to be with him, it makes the things of this world seem less important than we are more interested in what's coming than what is. And um, the wisest man who ever lived, who tried it all, he says it's all empty, nothing there, no satisfaction. What satisfies the soul, and I'm glad we sang that song this morning, you satisfy my soul. And I really can't think of anything else that does. I got a really nice 66 Impala convertible. It's really nice. I was driving it yesterday. I had some satisfaction for about 15 minutes. And then it's just another car. And so things, possessions, they come and they go. But what satisfies the soul is looking, having hope for what's coming. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Why don't we stand and pray? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as you're pretty straightforward about us not wanting to worry. You love us so much you don't want to see us stressed out or depressed or have anxiety. And Lord, it's not so much about reading your word, but doing your word. It's not so much about serving you as it is spending time talking to you. So, Lord, we don't want to play church. We don't want to play religion. But we do thank you for the blessed hope. And please help us take to heart that the things of this world are passing away. And your treasures are forevermore, and they are eternal. Thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For about 15 minutes, and then it's just another car. And so things, possessions, they come and they go. But what satisfies the soul is looking, having hope for what's coming. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why don't we stand and pray? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as you're pretty straightforward about us not wanting to worry You love us so much you don't wanna see us stressed out or depressed or have anxiety. And Lord, it's not so much about reading your word, but doing your word. It's not so much about serving you as it is spending time talking to you. So Lord, we don't wanna play church, we don't wanna play religion, but we do thank you for the blessed hope. And please help us take to heart that the things of this world are passing away. And your treasures are forevermore and they're eternal. Thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.